Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Electric Underground and today I'm extremely excited for today's guest. It's something I've been wanting to talk to for a very long time. The developer of my favorite beat-em-up and many other favorites beat-em-up as well, Fight and Rage. Welcome to the channel, my dude. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? So to get started, I thought it'd be fun to kind of break the ice of the interview rather than going through the typical your story and everything i thought maybe we'd start by talking a little shop in the beginning so i've had a lot of people message me and talk to me about beat-em-ups and so i thought i'd throw some questions at you that people who are interested in making beat-em-ups or people who are just interested in the genre itself would want to hear about so the first question is when a dev is making a beat-em-up where is the best place to start? Because there's a lot going on in the genre, and I actually don't know. Where where would you recommend starting if you're going to make a beat-em-up? Whatever that makes you feel confident or motivated to keep going, I think that's that's the best choice. Where did you start when you were working yeah. on Fight and Rage? Where was the kind of the starting point for you? When I, I started to make just character. The first thing about Fight and Rage was the Gal Sprite. Nice. I I think I I I showed that on on Twitter some years ago. I was testing the a program for 3ds doing pixel art on 3ds uh, inchworm animation, and I make an an sprite. I love how how she looks and. Then I, I started to, to, to think about making a beat-em-up with that style. Oh, that's cool. That, so you kind of started more on the, the visual artistic side of things, where you created the character sprite, and you're like, okay, now I need a game to go with this thing. <laughs> yes, I was working on a previous beat-em-up called Master Ninja Fighter. And previous to that, I, I was working on a company, and I was working on... And again, call it Super Vampire Ninja Zero. That's is available to play on PC. It's, it's a prototype. It was pretty close to Fight and Rage in some aspect. So you were speaking of these earlier beat 'em ups that you were working on. What were some lessons that you learned early on when you were making beat 'em ups that you realized, okay, these were mistakes that I need to go back and redo, or that they were mistakes you wish you hadn't made in the beginning? that you want to pass on to people to keep an eye out for? Every time I, I make a game was very spontaneous. So for my games, I only make games because I enjoy to, to make them. The, the things I fix, I don't remember that like errors that I want to prevent in, in some way because you sometimes need to make errors. I, I could talk about specific code, code yeah. things. Yeah, what specific things popped out to you? Well, sometimes you work on a, on a game without thinking about, for example, when you program a beat em up, the first time I program the characters, the main characters, different with different logic than than enemies. I, I found it easier and more maintainable to program all characters like same things and prepare the, the, the code to support n amount of characters and divide, prepare the code in order to work with team objects. That's a good insight. So you when you program 
groups of enemies in a beat 'em up, you need to sort of tie the groups together in a logic. Like you need some sort of script or something that coordinates them together. It's not a script to coordinate them. In in case of Fagon Rage, talking about game logic, mm-hmm. every character is independent. So they have its own in artificial intelligence which is very rogue. The, the the enemies doesn't know what other enemies are doing. Right. So yeah. they they work independently, but there is a system that control what kind of artificial intelligence the enemy can use it. For example, pretty technical part, but it's very really funny. We're here for the technical it. stuff. That's what this channel loves. Okay. We love the technical that's, stuff. That's better. Enemies have two kind of artificial intelligence. One is for passive and other is for active. So one of the things that most enemies doing in impossible mode is just walk around you. On aggressive mode, let's call it. On aggressive mode, they walk against you and react. Right. And that's when they start doing the their, their logic for attacks and things like that, when they're in aggressive mode. Yeah. The, the enemy have three behaviors, three main behaviors. Let's see two. One is the defensive behavior. They are in front of you. They probably will do uh, the most aggressive reaction. Sorry. They have um, reactions to close stances. So if they are close to you, some enemies will get away or attack. Depends right. on the enemy. Yeah. For example, Tracy, the whip girl. Yes. If she is in front of you, she will avoid. She will escape mm. and try to attack you in the mid distance and not the close distance. But other enemies seek you for the close distance and their reaction to close distance was attacking you. Knife rat. I don't know their technical yeah, names. For example. Knife for example, rat. <laughs> Maybe you, you see that there are at least two kinds of rats. One of them is the normal rat that just walk around and if they are close to you, they attack you. The other one are the extremely aggressive uh, rats mm-hmm. that always works against you, always. They like hunt you down, basically. Yeah, there is a different kind of enemies with the same character. So, same character, but different AI, AI or artificial intelligence. There is two kinds of action in, in, in a character. There are decisions and reactions. So, when a character is close to you, is use the close reactions. When it's uh, mid-distance, it use the mid-reactions. If they are far distance, they use the far reactions. Normally, the character is deciding things. It takes some time. So, for example, seek the closest distance. That is the artificial intelligence of the aggressive rat. The aggressive rat is always deciding seek close distance. Mm-hmm. The close reaction is just attacking. So it's very basic. With the characters who do the passive mode or aggressive mode, what causes them to switch between those 
AI behaviors. Like, let's say you have a, a character, a rat, yeah. or a character who's like in passive mode. They're hanging out, they're walking around, they're flanking you. What triggers them to go, okay, it's yeah. aggressive mode time? That depends of, on the game difficulty. For example, okay. there is a hidden mechanic that I call it attack tickets. It's, this was very fun to, to program because the characters asking the game for an attack ticket. So the attack ticket tickets are limited. In easy difficulty, attack tickets one available. So Oh okay. The, so each enemy gets one oh, ticket? One one of the time choose the aggressive reaction. When the enemies die or have not control, for example because you, you are hitting them, they return the ticket. So the oh, ticket is okay. available again. So the next enemy will come. In the unfair difficulty, the tickets are unlimited. All enemies can choose aggressive reaction. <laughs> yeah. So they're all attacking you all the time. And so that that's how you scale the difficulty across yeah. the, the end modes. In normal, I think that it was two tickets. So you can expect that one enemy for each side can, can attack you. There right. are other, other logic that makes the enemy trigger some behaviors. Some enemies can know something about other enemies, but not directly. Let's suppose that you are uh, fighting against two aggressive rats. When I was programmed that, I noticed that there's something not too cool that happened. For example, if the two rats are on the right side, the two rats comes from the right, the right side too. So they are in the same place, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's not cool. Right. So I have an, an action to, instead of six close reaction, six close free position. They choose to move against the free side of the player. So if there is an enemy on the right side, mm. they choose the left side. Right. In order to run the character. Those enemies are very annoying in some in some ways because <laughs> you are hitting them hitting the right and the left is always trying to to attack you from the other side. It's very easy to see that in the in the last section where the, the three governments. In the three governments there's uh, Two uh, about if if I remember well, it was two normal rats and then start the aggressive rats that drop knife. Yep. If you see the aggressive rats that comes from that side, they try to attack you from the from the left and not from the, from the right side. That's because the dormants are active. Oh, and they okay. Are in the in the right side. I I think that 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 was the reason, if I remember well. So it's very clear to see that governments are active in the, in that. Right, they're just hanging the, out, waiting for you to hit them, so they can attack you. That's basically how it works. But characters have some reactions on, for for other things too. When the character is is jumping about against them. So if if you if you jump on some enemies, they do an anti air yeah. or other escape or something like that. So there are a lot of reactions in order to 
keep the game a bit predictable in some ways. You, you can play with, with this. An excellent game in that kind of stuff is Street of Rage 2. Because Street oh, of Rage yeah. 2, if, if you study that game, everything is a reaction based on what you're doing. Not everything, there's a bit of random, but you can control a lot of non-obviously things moving your chart. Not always, but they will they can choose to to do a, a fast charge punch. Yes. But if they are close, they never use the fast uh, um, the fast uh, punch. They use the um, the jump, the, the the back jump, and yeah. the fast punch. So you can they they use that attack as an anti-air too. So if yeah. you jump against them, they they will they will probably do, do that. That kind of, of of stuff is crucial for me because if I don't work on that in that way. Yes. And I would say that is a real strong suit of Fight and Rage. And that's something as a player I'm always keeping an eye out for when I'm playing. I'm always thinking, all right, how do I exploit this AI? How do I trick them to do what I want them to do? And one thing that's really fun about Fight and Rage is there's so many different types of behaviors the enemies will do that you don't just have like one little trick. You have to kind of come up with a whole strategy, like on the Dobermans. I can't remember exactly what I figured out to do, but basically what I would do is I'd chase after them. And when they're doing their backward jump, I'd like grab them, you know? So you'd have to like trigger their backward jump and then chase them and grab them. Or there's other things you could do. It's fun how dynamic the enemy AI is. Most people, that's an easy strategy. Avoid the line, waiting for the decision of seek to close position. So. When Dobermans seeks the close position, you can you can hit them normally. So most people, what they do is avoid the line and waiting for the Doberman choose seek close position. With the, with the last boss, there is something very similar strategy. You can keep avoiding him and waiting for one of the decisions. The last boss have one bad decision that's not very probable to do, but <laughs> it can be done. That is jump against you directly in, uh, oh, in front of you. Yes. Try to, to play safe and avoiding, avoiding, avoiding all you can, waiting for that moment. Every enemy has a non-obviously weak point or, e or easy exploit in some way. But normally if you want to play faster or let's say faster, you probably need other strategies. Yeah, especially with the final boss, if you play it in the... I always play on turbo mode, for example, and then you play in the higher difficulties in turbo mode. 
he is, I mean, staying alive on that screen is pretty challenging because the dude is just firing off bullets super fast. And then the other enemies are just coming at you full bore. So, like, just to survive, sometimes you have to crowd control them just to stay alive. I'm sure that strategy is still really good enough. Yeah. Though. The boss difficulty individually must be not, not so hard because it's not so fun to play against one single character that resists too much. But it's fun when the, the other enemies are active. I let other other enemies enter in the screen after you play a bit. That's right. Phase two. Against only, only the boss. Yes. Maybe you can discover the weak point of the boss, but until when, when you discover it, you will face the real challenge that is playing against the boss and the enemies at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah, I really like that style of design a lot. That's that layer of challenge that makes you, so you can't just be so static and just say, all right, well, I figured out, if I just wait out this pattern, he's done for. Because while you're sitting there trying to wait out the pattern, you've got all these baddies grouping around you, and if they grab you or hit you, the boss will come in and smack you up pretty good. Yeah, I like that style of boss design a lot. The challenge is not only doing well with your character. So, the enemy's strategies are not so obvious. The game strategy are not so obvious. So, yes, it's a game thing thinking more for people that want to join far that character movements. I think that a lot of beat em up, even modern beat em up, are more focused on enjoy your character movement. So the strategies tend to be very obvious. For example, uh, a boss that run, a boss that run and bounce against the wall, keep DC and you must hit in that state and then walk around and waiting for the obviously moment to hit them. Yeah, I don't like messengers that, like that. But it's not a beat em up, but it's a the, um, action the, platform. The bosses, the bosses in the messenger are very obvious the moment when you yep. when you need to hit. I don't like that, but I understand that most people want it. I call that Zelda boss design. I think that's where most people kind of get this, uh, at least Western devs, maybe Zelda was sort of the influence on how they think bosses are made. But that is exactly how bosses work in Zelda games, where, oh, you have the bomb in the dungeon. So when you get to the boss, you use the bomb, of course, and then there's these obvious phases. Okay, this is where you throw the bomb in the lizard mouth, or this is where you use the item you got in the dungeon. And it feels like a lot of modern action games are falling into this style of boss design as well. And I agree, I, I'm not a fan of it because it feels like, okay, where's the dynamic, interesting aspects of strategy? Because all you need to do is, oh, this is when you attack, boss solved. Okay, we can move on. You know, it just feels very Simon Says, one, two, three, mix and match your colors type of stuff. Imagine uh, a boxing game where you need to <laughs> run against the, the ring, run, run constantly and waiting for the, the, the other boxer to get tired and undone the gloves and you must hit them in that state. That's <laughs> yeah. not fun for me. No. That's, that's, that is very boring. But I understand that people 
who are exciting to learn to move the character will love that because they discover that they have how to avoid they avoid and then discover look i have to attack here a kind of thing that says attack here that makes this game easy for everyone i don't like that because i love to play games more than that but i understand that it's a easy decisions for the designer and for the public because most public just when they don't found how to attack an enemy for example let's suppose that an enemy in some state makes a kind of anti-air so the, the player jumps and see that the enemy has an anti-air so that enemy you will never jump against them that they think maybe it's not true maybe you need to jump against that enemy but in other moment right so yeah they, they discard strategy so they will work against the enemy and try to attack him i can't attack him directly sometimes make that kind of thing is a must if you want to reach million of people that's an interesting topic because rare is the i don't want it because because i make a game for me and for other people that love what i love yes exactly. i i can do it because i i am one person i feel about 10000s i am good with that if i ha- i have a big studio i can't do that Well, Maybe I can is... if I found all my public and see that my public is enough to buy the, the game and make it rentable. Oh, it's an interesting topic with something like Fight and Rage because comparing it to another beat-em-up that just came out, Shredder's Revenge, the Turtles remake game, what's interesting is a lot of this also sort of revolves around the demographics of people who review games and people who publish and stuff like that because rare is the reviewer who's going to play something like Turtles Shredder's Revenge and say the boss design is too simple it's too basic it's too 1 2 3 oh you solved the boss Zelda style design rare is that inter- reviewer i'll say that <laughs> most people won't instead they'll say something like oh okay i get it this is good design this is smart design And then these same reviewers will play Fight and Rage with all the dynamic boss fights and oh like the Minotaur for example I was thinking of that the Minotaur grabs you and pile drives you and so at first you think oh stay away from this guy don't grab him because he'll pile drive you but then it turns out you can grab him and beat the shit out of him too you just need to find the right moment to do it like yeah. those types of touches and that type of real in-depth enemy design boss design all that sort of stuff That's not really going to get rewarded all that much as far as your critical evaluation because I think most critics what they're looking for is precisely what you're saying they want a real nice breezy simple experience and that's what they'll gravitate to. I feel like yeah. games like Fight and Rage are a diamond in the rough because you're pioneering waters that a lot of other developers aren't even attempting to go into. You're trying to build on the genre of the past rather than just 
let's try and streamline the genre and make it accessible for millions of people who never played a, a fighting game or beat them up in their life. For example, in the in the Turtles, Turtles game, the Shadow of Revenge, I think that's a good decision. I I can't blame how easy are the bosses because it's a nice idea. I I will not do in 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 that way if I was making a game. But I think it's it's a boring way to to play against bosses. But it's a good idea. Well, it's a good idea if you're trying to cater to an audience that doesn't care about the genre all that much or don't really. Well, okay. For example, I reviewed Turtles and I was more critical of it than basically anyone else on earth as far as its enemy design, boss design, level design, all that stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of people who played it that weekend and it had a good time and, you know, because it was accessible and it was telling you what to do and it wasn't that complicated. But the question is, and this is something that I try to bring up on my channel is, okay, so you played Shredder's Revenge that weekend. When do you plan to play this game again? How long has this game going to be in your rotation? Or are you going to play it that weekend, have a fun time, relive your nostalgia, and a month from now, it might as well not even be in your Steam library. You don't care. Whereas with Fight and Rage, uh, I'll have to put a screenshot of this. I have at this point, I'm pretty sure, between the Switch version and the PC version, I'm up around 300 to 400 hours of me playing Fight and Rage. And it's just something I will throw on all the time. Like, oh, I'm bored. Let's play some Fight and Rage. There's that depth to the game that keeps me coming back, that keeps me excited and engaged. And I'm finding shit in the game the other day that I was like, oh God, I had no idea this was even in the game. So there is a big difference, but I don't think that difference gets recognized. When I was playing Shadow, Shadow Revenge, I, I, I noticed that the arcade mode is extremely extends in the time, uh, about two hours. Oh my God, yeah. So I won't play that game again in my life, probably. <laughs> right. Because I have childs and that was a pain. I buy this game in the in the same day it launched. It's very hard, but not in the way that I like it. But it's good. <laughs> so I played a normal mode and finished without losing continues. That was very frustrating for me in the kind of I don't want to spend two hours without passing time with my child. Me with my child. Hey, I'm right there with Other you. One. And I felt the exact same way playing through that game. It's not just that the game's long. Streets of Rage 4 is pretty long as well. It's not perfect, but Streets of Rage 4 at least keeps the dynamics Feels better. Yeah, it keeps things moving. It has much more sort of dynamic things going on in the levels. In Shredder's Revenge, I'm not kidding. By the end there, I couldn't tell what level I was in. What was you know? It all blended together. It all felt very the same by the end there and especially when you discover oh just taunt to super and you'd realize okay this is busted so yeah, oh just, yeah and they came that, taunting that. To super in your way through it just got boring and yes. so and so with like fight and rage for example yes. i'll sit down and i'll say okay i'm gonna stream fight and rage for two hours then i have to record or something five hours later you know there's like four people left in the stream because it's 3 a.m. and I'm still playing Fight and Rage because I'm like, oh, God damn it, I want to get the unfair clear, but it's so hard for me. This is you're, you know, you're the developer, so it's a little different. Yeah, I money. think. But for me, it's like a totally different tier of game. It's way up there for me. I can spend hours playing, for example, Final Fight, 
in the most difficulty settings. And yes. I was always the games. My ending in final fight on extreme on maximum difficulty is always a game over. <laughs> so for me, it's fun. It's fun to play like that. For me, the the most common and real ending in a game is the game over. <laughs> so the other ending is just like the game and says, you know, you play very well. You are champion. Come on, <laughs> everyone is is happy now. Uh, get out of here. <laughs> so the real ending, the real ending is the game over. <laughs> We all know in the life, the real ending is the game over. That's right. I see the games in that way because I I love to play games when I lose in the game. I I love to lose in in games trying to beat them. So when you beat yes. them, is is very grateful. It's yes. very exciting. Well, there's so, it gives you gives you something to continue to play for as well. It gives you something to continue to. So you I beat it in like three hours. There's no hard mode. It's kind of over. <laughs> That's it. Because there's nothing left to do, so yeah, I definitely agree there. The the, the interesting thing in I, I think in order to to, to analyze this is Shadow Revenge in the hard mode is very hard. I I can't beat it. If I make everything well, it's two hours, and the strategies I think that the strategies will not very fun to right exactly. To But yeah, the strategies was... for bosses. I hate them, but exactly. I, I exactly. always say it's, it's a good idea. It's it's a game perfect for the public. It's That's not a bad game. It's it's a good game, but the explicitation of the challenge is is direct. It's very direct. I don't like that. Nowadays, games try to get positive reviews at any cost. So. If you play uh, a new game, especially a big company new game, you will notice how that game try to avoid your frustration. Yes. If you keep playing, you will not lose, and you will keep playing. So, past the two hours, you can't a refund. <laughs> you can ask for a refund. So. Mm. Not frustrating in terms of yes. how hard can be. That's fast for me, but I am a Nietzsche. I am not not the most people, and it's more rentable in the other way. And it's not bad because if you want a challenge in Shadow of Revenge, you will have a challenge. Try to figure out how to beat it on hard. I'll tell I you how. Hard to say. Dodgeroll. Ton <laughs> <laughs> super and dodgeroll <laughs> to the win. That's how you do it. I'm really glad you in brought this topic too? up. Yes, in hard. I'm really glad you brought this topic up because it's something that I think people haven't quite parsed through when we talk about difficulty in games. Because I really like your approach because we do have the two extremes. We have the one extreme of modern gaming, which is we want to hold your hand as much as possible to get you through this game. I'm here to help you as a developer. I'm going to give you as much leverage as I can get you through this game. And then you have the opposite of the old school arcade games that want to get you off that cabinet immediately. So they're going to beat the shit out of you and not really care too much about what you say or what you think because they're trying to get you off the cab and get that credit. But I think 
as arcades went along and as these genres developed, there is that middle path. And I think Fight and Rage definitely is riding on that and is on the forefront of that, which is we're going to give you that arcade difficulty. We're going to give you that genuine challenge, but we're going to introduce mechanics and visual indicators and things like that to help you at least understand what is happening. A great example is like invulnerability animations. You realize, okay, the enemy's invulnerable here. Fight and Rage is very good at communicating what is going on on screen with the player so that you can start to dissect what is happening rather than... And the problem is with some older arcade games like Final Fight, for example. Yes, it is fun to do those punch cancels and basically obliterate the game using punch cancels. But the problem with that is it is basically how you have to play in the end because the strategy is so powerful and it's so good. And Fight and Rage doesn't have stuff like that. It doesn't have punch cancels that you can just abuse throughout the whole game or all that. It's that nice balance where it's well-crafted enough that you can't exploit the game. You have to play the game, but it's also not so hand-holdy that it's just Simon Says all the way through. And I think that's a really fine line. What were you looking out for when you were balancing the game mechanics with stuff like that? I played the game, the game a lot while trying to to explode all I can. If I found an easy exploit, I work in order to to not allow that. Let's suppose that an enemy makes a very predictable attack. So that attack is very punishable. It's very easy to be punishable. I remember when I let people test fight and rage, people say to me that it was very easy because they were playing the first level only. The first level must be very easy. So I can hear that feedback and say, oh, so then the general Tigar must be harder. The, the attacks must be more powerful. I can choose to make a boss that has very powerful attacks that you need to avoid and then get dizzy <laughs> and then attack them when, when he's dizzy. <laughs> if you get obsessed about, oh no, that attack is not so powerful, that's a boss, that's a, that's a very powerful character, you, you need to be afraid of that attack. If you start to think like this, probably you make a very incredible attack. And that attack is not fun to, to right. counterattack. So yeah. that uh, extremely attack, uh, well, well, that boss is very hard. Now, what we can do? After that attack, maybe he's vulnerable. <laughs> so, if you start with, with that kind of mind, yes. For me, it's better to avoid the extraordinary things and big, incredible attacks and keep, well, that game, that boss just slides from the mid-distance. Yes. What, what's the heart of that? There's not, there's not heart, but there are some other enemies. That enemy have a lot of life and that enemy avoids to keep hitting when it rises. So, some games, in order to do harder bosses, keep them in armor mode, just like oh god, uh, Street of Rage Four. And no. I don't like that decision. No. I yes. hate that Get decision the because armor out of here. You, you have a moveset 
that allows you to make combos and that combos doesn't work with bosses. That for me is not good. I agree. For me, it's not feel good. So armor mode is just a way, a cheap way to make bosses harder. Yeah, well, that's my feeling too, because the way I like to think about beat-em-ups that I think are my favorites are, it's basically a game of joust between you and the enemy characters where you're throwing frames at each other, you're throwing hitboxes, and it comes down to those that frame data of, okay, is this plus on block? Is this negative on block? Uh, is this negative on hit? All that sort of stuff. And so what I love about fight and rage boss fights is you're trading back and forth with these enemies, all of this sort of frame data. And oh, like you're saying, the stage one boss, the general, he slides and his hitbox when he slides is on the ground. So you realize, okay, I can hop over this hitbox and hit him in the face when he's sliding because he's not protected up there. And then in other modes, when you try and jump in on him, he'll uh, anti-air you with the, the flying kick thing. And so you're you're doing this dance between you and the boss of, okay, where are you open? Where am I open? Let's let's fight this out. Whereas with, I think, a lot of modern beat-em-ups, the issue is they don't have that duel of hitboxes going on. Instead, it's a game of Simon Says of, okay, now you can hit me, hit me, hit me, hit me. Like you say, the policeman blows his whistle. Okay, go back to your corners. Go, you know, sit, time out now. And then, <laughs> you know, that's how it feels. It feels like a, a game of Simon Says, yeah, for me, I, I see that like we paid animators to make good enemy animations. Just let them show they work. We work on this boss with much care. So let them boss show what he have. When did you start making Fight and Rage? And what was kind of the initial inspiration you talked about making Gal? I guess uh, from that point, uh, what sort of motivated you to keep going with the game? I usually make a character and likes how the characters look and try to extend that. The starting point usually is, is that it's some, some graphics and mix them with some ideas I have to, to make games when you can hit things. <laughs> yes. It's very spontaneous. It just kind of hits you. You're like, now, I'm for example, make this uh, game. The design of Fight and Rage was very spontaneous. So when I make that character, I never think about her background. I just make a good looking character. And then I started to think about the context. So the context of Fight and Rage was decided just to make an excuse to the feeling of the game, the feeling when you, you need a good reason to fight against a lot of other people. And you know, that doesn't really surprise me. Some of the best games and some of the best things, not just games, best artistic creations, a lot of them have this really spontaneous, subconscious birth. You know, it wasn't like you were sitting around and sort of like looking at games on Steam and thinking, okay, what elements can I take from this? What elements can I take from that? How do I mix and match things to make a game? 
you were just hit with the inspiration and just kind of flowed through you as you're making the game. And I feel like we're kind of missing a lot of that with game design these days. You know, Fight and Rage definitely feels that way. It feels very organic, full of life, rather than, honestly, like Shredder's Revenge, that feels very committee-ish. It feels sort of like, this is what we're doing, this is what works, we're going to take this element, that element, let's, you know what I mean? It feels more puzzled together, whereas Fight and Rage feels much more like you're going with the flow. And so that's kind of what your experience was developing it. You're just kind of letting it rock. You're not really worrying about it. You're just letting it go. I think that's because it's a vision of one. If you have a vision of one in a game, usually you will found that. Because if you have to do a game entirely by yourself, you need to to keep motivated because yes. the game will not you will not finish it. So yeah. you you just do what whatever you want to do. You you make sacrifice sometimes because I am not fan of making pause screen, for example. But I need to it's a game for other people, so I need to put a pause screen. When you put yourself to work on that, you probably will enjoy that. When you start to work on that, you will not. In some ways, you need to see your game as a consumer. And in some cases, you will need to game as a developer. I have two motivations to, to make this game. One of them is playing, and other thing is just doing some aspect of the game. So when, when you have some animation of a character that you like, you think, oh, that, that will be cool to have that other movement. So you start right. to work on that. So what kept you motivated to keep going? Because I am positive just by the amount of stuff that is in Fight Rage, the amount of just everything going on in the game, that this was a beast of an undertaking to put together. So what kept you motivated? What kept you pursuing this game? Because you're doing it, you said, by yourself. So well, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of dedication. I was entirely working on the, on the game. I left my shop and started to try to make my own games. So my wife is not exactly my wife, but is my partner, because we're not married, decided to help me in, in that way. So she suggested me to, to leave the shop and try to my own games. She saw how every time I I finish at my shop, I try to make my games in my free time. She see any talent of on me, so she thought that was a good idea. It was, now, now I can say it, but in that time we don't know. So... That does make a I, huge difference though. This is more for the audience, not really commenting on you directly, but this, this is my own experience. It does make a big difference where like in my teenage years, when I had no responsibilities, I could basically do whatever the hell I wanted. I could never get a damn thing done. I would just always like go from project to project, thing to thing, podcasting, YouTubing, you know, or anything. Video game developing, writing music. I yeah. never could dedicate to anything because I would get to that point where it started to become kind of a grind and I'd be like, yeah, do this. But now that I'm older and having this channel, part of it does support my family. It totally changes the dynamic of your sort of relationship with the creative process because I'm sure, I'm just projecting here, I'm sure for you, you're putting so much of your personal life on the line, your, your girlfriend, wife, 
person is uh, like supporting you, you can't just go in for the day and like half-ass it. You're going in there like I got to get this done. You know, there's a lot on the line here. Was yes. that was that kind of how your mindset was? Yes, it was it wasn't an option. You had to go. Yes, when you are tempted to to stop, you can't. That's so, right. <laughs> you got to keep going because you decide. You are not forced to to do that. I was working by myself. Uh, my my girlfriend doesn't know how much I was advocated advocated really in the project. So, right, it's a it's something personal. I I needed to to finish that game. I feel I I was feeling supported by my girlfriend. So, giving up was not an option. That's so, right. I feel that can fail with the game so maybe the game was a failure i don't know but i was sure that it's definitely I not a failure i'll need... tell you that right now fight and rage is one of the greatest beat-em-ups ever made definitely not a failure commercially failure for example it's oh, not I a commercial yeah. failure for for me because but maybe it can not work in that way in, in, in... even as an indie game I would say in this genre, in this sort of sphere of games, I would say it's a huge success. Now, the scale of these things gets a little tricky because you look at like a big budget with some real studio money behind it, like Turtles Shredder's Revenge. And yes, there's studio money behind that, whatever people say there yeah. is. That, that's like a whole different ballpark, though. But like just a straight from the home indie game, I feel like Fighting Rage has been a big success. But I, you know, I don't know the financials of all that, but this subgenre yes, is it's... not easy to break into as far as sales, as far as people checking out the games. It's just a brutal environment. Yes, for, for, for me, it's, it, it was a success in, in every aspect. So I like how the game is. The commercial part, the budget is very well, it's, it's very good. The sales from from, from Fighter Rage right now and five years has passed, so it's very good. And that's good. I, I have I'm a house now, <laughs> so. But when when I was developing, I was not know what could happen. So oh yeah, I I was ready to fail in some ways, but I was not ready to give up. In in right. I, I mean, I really respect. I that. mean, I needed if it will work or not. So if it doesn't work, I need to know that. I think of the story of Fight and Rage as like really inspirational. And I think it's a little bit of a, a bummer that indie devs, you know, don't quite get the same sort of recognition that larger studios do. For example, here's what I mean. The story of Final Fantasy is like gaming legend at this point. Oh, they're about to go under. They had to get the game done. But, I mean, when you compare that story, which is, you know, they're kind of a small startup company, and if they failed, we wouldn't have Final Fantasy, but it's not like the dudes were out on the street or anything. But, like, with a lot of these indie developer stories yourself, they're putting everything on the line in a way that just studios are not doing. And uh, I do want people to recognize that more, that it's not just, you know, you're sitting drinking a coffee at your day job and every coffee break you do a little deving and then after a year or three you're done with the game it's not like that it's a an all-in sort of effort 
it was the best in certain ways because I have the motivation to keep going. I have the time to keep working on, on, on a single game. That's something that some people doesn't have. I didn't mean it as like a marketing style pitch. I meant more in the culture of gamers. Other indie developers recognizing what other indie developers do as like sort of examples and motivation of their own. Like, so when they're having a hard time with their game, they're having a hard time following through, they hear the story of, oh, well, this dude put everything on the line and he followed through not knowing if it'd work or not. Developers sort of recognizing each other's efforts so that, because I think some people kind of get the impression that people just sort of make the indie game, they work on it an hour a week or whatever, and then after three years, out pops the indie game, and maybe some games are like that, but something like Fight and Rage, a game of this scope, is not like that. It, it was an all-in effort. So I, I just think people recognizing that story, I think it could be inspirational for other developers who don't quite know what, what it actually entails. The, the tragedy of a lot of indie games that are really good, Fight and Rage being one of them, is a lot of them are sort of like one and done affairs where you get fight and rage, everyone's like, hell yeah, and then we never see a sequel or that, that's kind of it. And that happens with a lot of indie games and I understand why, I do understand why. But at the same time, it's such an exciting idea to actually have follow-up to such a great game because arcade genres especially are iterative genres. You know, imagine if they made Final Fight and they're like, all right, bros, that's it. <laughs> or they make Streets of Rage 1, and they're like, all right, that's yeah. it. No more Streets of Rage, we, we're good. Uh, that happens all the time with indie games. Shmup's the same way. Like The iterative aspect of the genre, the building on what you built before, is really what you start to see. It's very exciting. So I would absolutely love to see a sequel to Fight and Rage 2, a continuation of it, rather than maybe some other genre or whatever it is you know but that's me i'm selfish i want fight and rage too but that's just me anyway when i finish fight and rage one i think about make a sequel in the future that's the reason why i let the hangout cliffhanger yes in that moment i think about using the same engine using the same graphics and make more content and continue the, the story. It's hard to think about it because I feel I can do something better right now with better graphics and... That'd be awesome. When you work on the framework, you see a lot of things that can be better. That's very frustrating to keep working on the same base. Right. I, I know that it works because that code is worth, but I have too much ideas. I, I, and I feel that I am forced to work with already have, and creativity doesn't come when you work like that. I'm so, very excited at the idea of you beefing up the game engine, beefing up the graphics, beefing all that stuff up. I think that's a great idea. Really take the game to the next level in terms of visuals, presentation, all that stuff. If I go back, if just because I need to make a, se a sequel and I don't want it. I don't want to be a slave of myself. My personal dream was, one of my main personal dreams was to have the resource to make my own games in my own time 
let my creativity, my spontaneous creativity, let go. five years and keep living with the cells of fight and rage that's that's very good it only from the cells of from from, from fight and rage that so is awesome for me for me it's a financial success absolutely so no doubt about it, it. It's, it's not it's not infinite but it's good you try to, to to finish a game obviously you you need to make efforts because it's always more easy to do nothing, or uh, mm -hmm. so that's that's obvious. But I could choose in in two parts. One of them could be enjoy what I gain and let my creativity works on a new game. I know that if I spend a entire entire week playing just playing old games not developing just playing my ideas will will come and i will need to work on a new game but when you make a kind of success you have the temptation of seeing yourself like a kind of superman who must work in a new game when you have the must uh, for the creative part of you, you are killing your creativity. At least for me, it worked like that kind of creativity crisis that I had. The two paths I had to, to choose was enjoy what I want or keep myself like a slave and keep working on new games. Forced to working on new games. Let's suppose that I chose the second one. I keep forced to work in a new game. It can be work. Maybe the new game is good because if you force it to do something somewhere in, in that line, you will love that. Maybe in order to do something and enjoy something, you need to force yourself to do something at some point. You need to do something. You need some effort always. But I don't. I don't know if I am expressing correctly because if pretty complex what what I'm saying yes. right now. I think I know what you're saying. So it's kind of an interesting dilemma. I, the sequel dilemma is an interesting one. There's even sort of a term for it in English speaking called the sophomore slump. You have this initial success, this big success. Fight and Rage would be an example of this. And the natural follow to that is like you're saying, okay, let's make Fight and Rage 2. And this is the dilemma that people run into with lots of things. Even YouTubing, sometimes I come up with this where I make a successful video, then it's like, okay, do I just follow it up or whatever? But the thing about it that's kind of a funny paradox is, in a way, you can say to make the sequel, to make Fight and Rage 2, that is predictable, that is expected, that is not very creative. 
So it would be more creative and more artistically genuine to make something completely new and different and all that sort of stuff. But here's the thing that I think is interesting is that that is also, in another view, an easier option. Because as a creative, think of like creative geniuses over the years, an artist that you really respect. The most impressive, in my book, the most impressive feats of creativity is when an author makes something great and then they make something, they build upon it and make something even greater the next time around. They, they're able to outdo their own work. They're able to make what was great even better. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's even more artistically challenging than to just move laterally and do something different. So it's kind of a, an interesting, I think that's what you're saying. It's like an interesting box where on one hand, it might feel a little bit predictable to make Fight and Rage 2, but on the other hand, to make Fight and Rage 2 and have it be better than Fight and Rage 1 would be a masterful yes. undertaking. It would be a beast. Yeah, yeah. And if you have your creativity is not open, it probably will not work. Talking about the two parts, I started to think about what I can expect of both boys. In the fourth set part, when I force it to continue make a sequel because it's viable, it's economically viable and that will work. So let's keep going on that way forcibly. If I choose that will not be very enjoyable, but it may work. So let's suppose that it works. Well, then I need to keep going in that way. Let's continue. Life is sacrificing, it's okay. Life is sacrificing in, in, in some ways, but not always. You need to, to keep a reason to sacrifice something. In that case, that is a hard thing in that way because I need to keep making sequels until it will not viable and then try another thing. That's the first way I don't want it for my life. If I'm going to be a slave, I prefer to be a, a slave that will gain too much, gain more money. Maybe I can want something more easy, like working like for a big company. And if I was working on, on ideas, I prefer to, to not depend on my creativity. I, I don't know if if understand what, what I mean. That path is not viable for me. No, it's not interesting because I don't interested in what leads. But thinking about the other path is very different. Let's suppose that I enjoy what I want. So, well, I have some economically stability, so I will play a lot of games that I wanted to play and let my creativity go on and make what game I wanted to make. So start to make a tiny game if I wanted, start to prototype uh, another thing. So let's suppose that I enjoy, I focus on enjoy my work. So I finish a new game or I not finish a new game. Oh, I only play Final Fight for three years. What I have done with my life. I, I enjoy the life. That is a very common story on indie devs, by the way, is they make their game <laughs> And then you never hear from them again. You know, they're just kind of done. Either the game sales were enough to yeah. keep them okay, or yeah. they just start making other but things or kind of like whatever. That's very common. Probably. 
they will have the same the same di dilemma that mm. uh, I have. The sacrifice part, you will kill your creativity, probably. So the other part lets you creatively life. Maybe you will not do anything with your creativity. It's a possibility. It's the wrong possibility for me. What amount of people wanted something from me before Fight and Rage? Maybe my girlfriend, my mother. So when I finish Fight and Rage, a lot of people start to ask for some things to me. And that's mm. good. That's very exciting. But I started to not understand how to deal with that in, in that way. And started to think how to live with that. And I noticed that I don't know in the past how to manage that. Right. And right now things going better, but some years were lose in that state. I know what you're saying. I definitely get where you're coming from. Like when I started doing my channel, at first no one gave a shit. Uh, you know, who am I? Just some dude. And so that initial process of me sort of proving myself, this was kind of like the analog of you in the early days just at your computer making fight and rage just before anyone knows who the hell you are. And then once I started to gain, I'm not a huge success or anything like that, but once I started to gain a good amount of a following, I had a bit of a meltdown, not on, on stream or anything, but in my own personal life, because I was like, there's getting to be a lot of expectation here. I wasn't prepared for this level of expectation. I wasn't prepared for people to be this invested in what I was doing. It kind of freaked me out a bit. And so I went through, this was the first two years maybe of my channel. But then I kind of had this realization where I realized the chance to walk away is always there. And then as I continued doing it, I realized not only is the opportunity to walk away always there, but the entropy of interest in what I am doing is so vast that I could walk away and disappear into the sunset in like a year and people will forget everything. Our relevance is so delicate that if you ever felt like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go back to working in my shop. You could do that. And a year later, you it would be as if Fight and Rage was made by another person. And Fight and Rage just exists on its own in the universe. And no one ever would connect it back to you. It's like that. That's kind of how it is with me in this channel. So I, I definitely know where you're coming from. Where There's days where I wake up and I say, maybe I want to start a channel where I talk about films. Or maybe I want to start a channel where I talk about other things other than these niche video games uh, that... You know, it's such an uphill battle to get it out there anyway. But I think it's just the thing that keeps me going in this direction is the the mission, the idea of like, I want to push these genres forward. I want to push this art form forward. That is sort of the antidote to this dilemma that artists run into where they make a great success and then they're at this crossroads. But if your mission is like, if you were really passionate about beat-em-ups and your mission is I want to push beat-em-ups further than they've been pushed before. I want to push this genre beyond what's been done. I want people to respect this genre in a way it's never been respected. Then like that path becomes more clear and the path towards, I would say like a fight and rage yeah. too becomes more clear because I think fight and rage is an amazing game, but I feel like there's a lot still on the table that you could move forward with that could really push the genre in ways that's never, like the graphics, for example, you mentioned that. Like imagine fight and rage with Guilty Gear tier graphics or something like that, or amazing graphics. There's still so much room to push things forward. 
that would be my sort of that's what my motivation is for my channel right is like could i push this concept of this niche video game channel so far that even like mainstream people would have to take these genres more seriously that critics would have to say would they'd have to start acknowledging shit like parries and level design and enemy design and take it seriously rather than just talking about how ninja turtles reminds them of eating pizza when they were 12 watching cartoons or whatever that's i guess my sort of insight if that is helpful at all on the this artistic dilemma of to continue or to forge a new direction when you get minimal success of something you are in a situation that you are not prepared because the normal situation is failure mm-hmm. for me at least it was it was like like that until like make fight and rage but it's like playing video games it's okay like that i keep failing i keep failing for for about 20 years until i make fight and rage okay that's that's okay for me what was very exciting i never give up in making games for for almost 20 years then i make fight and rage it was not that oh let's start to make video games okay well i i have fight and rage no, I make video games by my own for about 20 years. I go to the work, then I go to my house, and in my house, in my free time, I learn to how to program in C Sharp and start making games. Why it will not happen again? Because Fight and Rage works. That's what I did with Fight and Rage, except I don't have the medium for good living because we have a very rough situation that pushed me to finish the game but nowadays the lion has not pursued me yeah i know what back, you're saying back, back then the lion was pursued me and that keeps me on every time well let's try keep on every time right now it's a bit harder because the lion is not pursued me So one last question. I thought this would be a fun way to end it. What game or what series are you most looking forward to playing as a player? Like outside of your time as a developer, what game or series do you enjoy the most or that you look forward the most to right now? Well, some years ago, I I was expected Street of Rage 4. Very, very excited that game because Again, I, I wasn't in my creativity crisis and I say, I need a game to compete. Yes. I, 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 I expected Scissor Frame 4 keep me on fire in order to... Be, I will try to, to do something better that until I, I see that Street of Frame 4 choose another path in the design. Yes, they did. Yeah. The same thing with the Ninja Turtles game and but in that game, I already know that that is was taking another path. I'm going to interrupt my question with another yes. question because you sparked the question yes. in my head. What if, okay, here's a hypothetical scenario. Another developer out yes. there releases just the most insane beat-em-up ever created of all time. Like it's blowing people's minds. It's just blowing your mind. You're playing this hypothetical. You're playing this beat-em-up and you're like, holy shit, this is another level. Do you think that would put some fire under you to be like, okay, fight and rage two right now? You know, you just start coding day one, just trying to catch up. Like, do you have that sort of competitive think, instinct with other developers? I, I think yes, because when I was working on fight and rage, I I was hungry 
because really hungry because I feel frustration with uh, because I don't feel any bitmap has good gameplay like Street Fighter Alpha 3. Right. And there is no was any bitmap that feels so good like Street Fighter Alpha 3. And I really wanted to make something like dramatic battle, but in the bitmap format, I needed to make. My intention was to make the best beat-em-up in terms of gameplay. The best beat-em-up in the it. world in, ter- in terms of gameplay. I think you achieved so it. That's, that's my intention. It's one of the reasons why the, the game that I am working on right now is too hard for me to make because I am not hungry because that game is not the best in any... I don't want to be the best in any aspect. So right. I want to make a game, a unique game, but not with that hungry. I am trying to make a unique game that is a mix, an extremely rare mix. I love how it's going, but it's not in that direct way that I want the best. The beat up with the best gameplay is a really meaningful goal. Achievement. Yes. I have hungry in other things, so I need amazing effects. In that game, I can't make amazing effects. You're in a lane of your own, basically. So maybe you need to sit down and play like Alien vs. Predator or something. <laughs> Get inspiration from that. Uh, because yes. modern yes, beat-em-ups, I, you I, are in your own lane. There's no other modern beat-em-ups that are coming up against Fight and Rage, in my opinion, in terms of excellence of mechanics and design. I am expected too, too much from other beat now. So, River City Gears releases and I play the game, I, oh yeah, too much RPG mechanics. Well, it's, it's okay, the game is like that. It's not. If you want a sequel of Fight and Rage, you must. Street Fighter 4 will not be. Don't, don't will do that. Not be a sequel. Don't start putting an <laughs> RPG mechanics in there for the love of God. You'll have a very no, uh, no, angry no. electric underground. <laughs> I would think a natural sort of follow-up would be is, like from your position, since you've achieved such excellence in the gameplay department, is maybe in Fight and Rage 2, bring that excellence of the gameplay of 1, but then beef up those graphics and make the presentation side of things really powerful and strong. So when people... This is what Guilty Gear did, and I think this really worked for Guilty Gear. And then they started kind of muddling it down in Strive, unfortunately, but... Guilty Gear Exerd was a huge leap forward for that game. The gameplay, eh, it's debatable whether it's better in Exerd or uh, Accent Core, but the graphics is, the leap forward there is huge, and the gameplay in Exerd is still very good. So that really blew up the, the series. That's how I think arcade genres, that's the direction they could go, where Instead of trying to add in dumbass RPG mechanics and crap like that, like just make them look amazing. Make the graphics just blow people's minds. And, uh, you know, that could be a real foot in the door. I like too much the, the, the graphics of Grand Blue Fantasy versus. I, yeah, those look I, great. I can't imagine a beat em up with that kind of graphics. Imagine Guilty Gear Exert, but it's, it's a beat em up, maybe. A beat em up with that graphics? I can't imagine that like as something desirable because for me in beat em ups there's something that I I like to, 
chibi version of characters for me is better for beatmaps. Well, it doesn't have to for look example, exactly like Guilty Gear, but even if they were chibi-looking characters, you know that that level of detail, that level of polish, that level of effects. Another example uh-huh. of this mm-hmm. could be Dragon Ball Z Fighters. You are talking about the quality of the silence, not the. I, I think I'm saying what, what, you know what I'm saying, this, what like the effects of because Dragon Ball Z was a popular franchise, yes. and it, it was a fusion of popular game. Arxis came in and they leveled up the graphical presentation and then they added in some okay-ish gameplay but the graphics of that game is what moved that game it doesn't necessarily mean it has to look visually like Exert like the character models and stuff but I mean like the upstep in the graphical fidelity where it's just such a leap forward for me the the most natural way to approach new things, new styles, and keep going from my comfort zone is have a fit on my comfort zone and another fit on my uncomfortable zone. <laughs> so yes. if I make a new game, every game will be pixelated for sure because I love to make that. I love to reach another level, but in the same category in some way. I mean, I love pixel art and the next game will be a pixelated one. So it's not semi-3D graphics or something like that. King of Fighters 13 is actual pixel art, though. It's just higher resolution pixel art. It's just taking it next level. But it's based on 3D models. So it's pixel art over 3D models. As far as I can... I can know it's like that. If you see some animations, it's like that. I am not very fan of that kind of pixel work. If I had to make an example of perfect pixel art, yes, I can say uh, games like Soldiers, for example. Soldiers for me is is a good example of perfect pixel art. Well, awesome! Thanks would, for coming. I, 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 see you, everyone. Thank, thank Adios. you. Yeah. Awesome stuff. <laughs> Bye-bye. So thank you to the $5 patrons, 100-100, another Joe, Anthony A., Aaron Solis, Bo, Ben, Blur Reality, Borgie22, Brian Shiver, Chris Yusufovich, Chronic Burnout 3, Climbing Coyote, Cook Some Soup, Corey Mark, Des Audio, Darren Griffin, Disco Stas Slayer, DJ420, Praise It, Eric H., FCK, Full Set, Retro Shmupper, How Su, Jay, Magellan6276, JLab, JBRPG, John Kelly, Game Boy Guru, K, K2, KZ, Khalil Reedy, Contain, Larage, Malays, Mark Toms, Matthew Derekish, Maz, Megadeth859, Minung, Macklin, Michael Stum, Mitchell Y, Queen Charlene, Nathaniel Davis, and Electron, Neon Dagger Games, Oakley Kugels, Psycho Blizzard, Rattlecat, Raul, Real Skeen, Riff Mason, Rolf015, Sarah, Scanline City, CSOFW, 7 Overdose, Shmup Junkie, Sarah Pong, Steve Fiction, The Boot Rex, The Dirty Screech, The N1, TRM, Sugumo, Twilight EX, Unicoi Roots, Wabby Legs, and Utakaya. Thanks for watching.